the mic fellow came over, displayed, and our static stand at Farnborough was six people deep wanting to know what sort of helicopter was capable of performing like that. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, the show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we get to travel the world to hear from people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Thank you, dear listener, for joining in as we talk helicopters again in this episode 14. And this will actually be a part one and part two will be episode 15. It'll be part two of the same interview. As today's guest, we get to talk to Dennis the Maestro, a Kenyan, who has a significant career to cover with lots to pass on. It's a, a bit of a juggle with this interview format, that I'm, and I'm you know, still quite new to it. And I, I don't know about you, but I normally listen to podcasts when I'm driving or out walking, so between 30 and 60 minutes works okay for me in that setting. But what I've been finding, though, is our guests have so much experience and knowledge that we can all learn from that I feel like I'm almost cutting them short, even when we've been talking for around the hour mark. Uh, so trying something a little bit different this time around with Dennis with the two-parter. And look, yeah, time just flies for me when I'm interviewing folks. And Dennis is definitely today is, is no different. So John Ecott was the same several episodes back. You know, we hardly made a scratch in his career and could have gone on a heap longer. So I'm experimenting. We'll do the two-part um, for this episode. But I'd love to get your feedback on what kind of length of the show episodes works for you. Uh, is it something you're listening to on the train as you're going to work? Uh, do you want to make it more like a, a lecture or a lesson and get the most out of these guys while they're on the show? So just, yeah, give me some feedback on that. It would be awesome. So talk about feedback, Aaron dropped me an email during the week about episode 13, which was with Andre Hutchings, where we talked about uh, helicopter longlining. So the email reads, Great show, Mick. My partner and I are Aussies, travelling in a car in the USA and Canada, and it's been a pleasure to listen to your podcast every week for the last few months. I could have listened for two hours or part two on the long lining. It was great. Heading to Alaska next week. Looking forward to doing some flying. Cheers, Aaron. So thanks, Aaron, so much. It's a, a total buzz to, to hear from folks who are listening to the show, and especially when you're you know, in different parts of the globe from where I am here in Brisbane in Australia. So Aaron, wishing you all the very best on the Alaska part of your trip, and hope you get flying and some photos there. So if anyone else uh, wants to send me some photos from your corner of the globe, then I'll post them on the Facebook page for the show, which is facebook.com forward slash Rotary Wing Show. Now, if you just take a moment out and listen very carefully, you can almost hear my moustache growing. Yes, that's right. We are now into November 2014. And if you'd like to help me raise funds for men's health while I'm looking ridiculous, then you can sponsor my mo. Uh, through the link at rotarywingshow.com forward slash mo, M-O. So I'm sitting on zero dollars at the moment. So show me some love and donate a dollar or two to the cause and I'll post photos as I go through the month on uh, on Facebook and you can have a laugh at uh, what passes as an excuse for my moustache. I mentioned today's guest was Dennis Kenyon at the top of the show. Now there'll be people listening that need no introduction to who Dennis is and with 62 plus years of flying, that recognition is pretty well deserved. For those that don't know who Dennis is, then you're going to be in for an extra treat today as you're going to meet an amazing ambassador for helicopters and just flying in general. 
And quite honestly, I didn't know about Dennis until a few weeks ago when I found a YouTube video of one of his display flights and then tracked him back through that to his website and, and got in touch. And I've got that video in the show notes for episode 14 at rorywingshow.com and you can see Dennis's display. Now, Dennis started out in Tiger Moss and then progressed to jets in the RAF, flying Lincolns, Meteors, Canberras, Vampires, Hunters, Pembrokes, Hastings, Ansons, and a bunch more. And look, some of those I don't even know what they are. So he's then tried his hand at helicopters, where he's racked up over 1,500 display flights, flown in several movies, trained around 200 pilots. He's won a World Helicopter Championship event and placed at several others. He's produced a helicopter video. He's written helicopter novels, uh, numerous articles in different publications. He's picked up a CAA Flying Safety Award and oversees the only helicopter scholarship of its type in the UK, if not the world. And as a sales rep, he's also sold over 300 helicopters. Ladies and gentlemen, he's been called a living legend of helicopter aviation, referred to as the maestro or denissimo. It's a pleasure to bring you Dennis the Menace Kenyon. Dennis uh, Kenyon, thank you for having the time available and for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show. Good morning to you. It's good morning over here in England. So, yeah, I'm uh, delighted to be take part in your Rotary Wing Show. And uh, away you go, please, sir. All right. And Dennis, look, we have a heap of stuff to cover because you've done so many different things. But uh, you weren't always a, a helicopter pilot. What were you doing before that? I joined the Royal Air Force, the British Royal Air Force, I suppose, yeah, the British Royal Air Force. Almost by accident, my family decided to leave England. My father was a musician and they decided to leave England uh, in 1952 and said, right, Dennis, we're off to America because he was going to play for the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And I said, well, no, I like music, but I think I'm going to become a pilot. And so I, believe it or not, I actually ticked a box in an advertisement that the Royal Air Force were running in those days. And it said, do you want to join the Royal Air Force in the air or on the ground? And I thought, I don't want to be on the ground. So I kicked in the air. And that kicked me off. I went to a selection test that you had to do in those days. Um, it wasn't Cranwell then. It was a little place I've forgotten its name in Essex. Um, and if you managed to maneuver the dots around the screen in the right order and answer the questions right, pass the interview, pass the medical, you were selected for aircrew training. And that's what happened to me. I think the process is pretty similar these days. And so the rest of the family, they they, they packed up and left you, yeah? and uh, and you joined the, the RAF. That's right, yes. Uh, um, so now I'm in the Royal Air Force. Uh, in those days, believe it or not, the first machine we flew was the, the Havilland Tiger Moth. Thinking back, you then went on to an, what they called a basic flying training school. The Tiger Moth thing was for air crew selection to make certain you had the aptitude, the physical aptitude to be a pilot. If you didn't pass that, you became a navigator or got kicked out completely. Uh, we went on to basic flying training on the chipmunk. I think I remember it was a T-10 chipmunk. Um, from there, you, I think somebody above must have decided whether you um, were going to become a bomber pilot or a fighter pilot. Um, if you were going to be a fighter pilot, you went the Harvard route. Um, they had schools in Rhodesia and in Gimli in, in Canada at the time, or you went on to the um, Airspeed Oxford group with twin engines, two, two to ten engines, I think you remember again. Um, I flew that. You got your RAF wings, which the RAF called the flying badge. I got the wings 
um, probably in 1953. Uh, and from there, um, I was hung about a little bit before I went to an advanced flying school in Somerset, a place called Western Zoyland, uh, where we were put onto the Meteor, Meteor Mark IV. Seven, Mark Seven was the dual tandem dual control machine. Um, and so you flew solo the Mark IV, little pressurized thing with a wind-up hood. From there, I went to a place called Lindholm, which is now a prison in Yorkshire. Um, and there I flew only as co-pilot on the Lincoln. You have a Lincoln big four-engine thing. Uh, it was the successor to the Lancaster, of course, but it was only to learn bombing techniques. Uh, did that course, then onto the Canberra, um, which was the light bomb, of course, a very high altitude thing, which I loved, absolutely loved. During that course, I also flew the Vampire, um, the T-10 version, and the Hunter T-7. Other types I've flown, I believe, would be... Um, Quite a few actually. I flew the Hastings for a while, but these were mainly air experience things to give you experience of other types. Um, I think that's about all I can remember now. That's right. One of the figures there says you've you know you've flown fifty eight fixed wing types um, without even getting the rotary uh, stuff. Yeah, so. it's in that it is in that area. It's types. Um, it's in the logbook, and I haven't got my logbook in front of me. But yes, I think it is in the region of fifty eight, sixty fixed wing types, and probably over one hundred and thirty marks. Yeah, it's in that area, and I think my rotary tote is up to about 33 just now. Yep, and we'll talk to the rotary stuff because that's probably where most folks would know your background now. There's two quotes I found that you've you talked about when you did the the fixed wing uh, flying there in the RAF was one about the the sheer joy of having a 600 miles per hour fighter jet strapped to a 19 year old's bum. Uh, so that must have been uh, <laughs> I remember, pretty I did early. Like that somewhere. Yep, and then the, the other I one was. Remember. Sorry, that's what I was going to say. The yeah. other one was uh, you were flying at 20,000 feet um, as a student and you had a, a two-engine flame-out in a, uh, is it a Westland Zoiland? Or that, that was a show, sorry, the Westland Zoiland. That was at the Westland Zoiland airfield. Um, the first bit, the bum bit, was um, oh, some reporter from, I think it was the Daily Express, which is one of our national papers, came down to, to the Westland Zoiland training base. It was an advanced flying school. Um, and just wanted an article, and he interviewed several of us, and I got picked out. I was a good-looking kid, I suppose, in those days, and looked good in the suit suit. And I always remember the headline in the um, in the Express was uh, flying officer Dennis Kenyon jumps onto his 600 mile an hour fighter as easily as you and I jump onto a London bus. Um, and I, I think I expressed the I, I expressed a view, which I'm not sure if it was published or not. But imagine being 19. And having a six hundred mile an hour jet fighter strapped to your backside—what fun is that? <laughs> well, I think one of the guys who went through the flying course with us—he went to the RAF, and uh, I'm pretty sure he was eighteen when he was on Hornets when he uh, got through his training. So, yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> and the flame out—the Western yeah. Zoyland thing was well during my time there in February. I'm guessing it was February fourteenth, in some sort of bell. I was held overhead at Western Zoyland at 20,000 feet, which is what you do to keep the fuel burn low in the jet engine, because two pilots had both had both been, had both crashed, or two had crashed on the airfield to start with and survived, but two others, because the runway was blocked, were diverted to a nearby airfield. Near field. Um, I was held overhead, and while I was overhead, bleating that fuel was getting lower and lower, both engines stopped. 
I made a descent. Somebody up there was looking after me, and I always remember thinking, well, this meteor jet's got lead all around the cockpit, and Western Zoyland is a, a Sedgemoor. In fact, the place where the last British battle was fought, the Battle of Sedgemoor. And I knew it was fairly flat, and I thought, if I could only level this thing out, um, when I see the ground come up, I might survive. In the event, I didn't need to do it. I will tell you a bit more of the story, because people might like to know about it. I, I'm not a totally religious person, but at the end of Western Zoyland Airfield, there's a church room, and the church had the usual obstruction lights on it. And I remember from our training night flying day, days that if you put your left wingtip on that obstruction light and held it steady there, it lined you up nicely on a sort of sweeping left face onto the runway. And I saw this red light. Now, it could have been anything. It could have been a parked car, I suppose. But because it was foggy, I forgot to mention it was a fogged out night as well. I put my wingtip on that light, leveled out on the runway heading, and next thing I know, I hit the ground, and it was the airfield. So somebody up there was looking after me. Um, I, I got out of the aeroplane, and here comes the Land Rover with the SATCO, the aircraft control officer, and in fact, my my commanding officer, and he said, we never thought you were going to stop, because I hadn't landed on the runway, landed on the grass, the runway was blocked. Uh, and I said, well, the, you know, both engines have stopped, and they didn't believe me. And I said, well, when you take the airplane away, you'll find there's no fuel in it. And I find a small story how you are when you're a youngster. I remember getting out of this airplane, standing upright on the wing in the fog, and looking down, and I'd put the air brakes out, and I thought, if the CO sees those air brakes out, he's going to kick my backside all over the airfield for leaving them out on landing. And I leaned in the cockpit, and there was enough pressure in the accumulator to put them in, and of course they went slam back. <laughs> so you, t- you tied it up what before a, you walked away. What a dark thing to do after you just survived a, 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 an emergency landing. So did you see the runway lights any time, or, the, or it was all blacked out? Do you know what the runway lights would consisted of in those days? No, they were little lanterns. Lamps. They called them glims in those days. So I'm, I'm talking about really old stuff. Most of your uh, viewers or readers of, of the show probably won't even know what a glim is. So that's what they were. Just paraffin wicks, a set light to them, uh, and that marked the runway. Don't <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> think right. about it now. Uh, all right. Well, let's, um, well, very quickly then. You finished up the, the flying there in the Air Force. Did you go uh, fixed wing? Did you go into airlines? I left the service and was uh, wanting to, to have a career. Um, it was in the days when Duncan Sandys had announced that the, I think it was the Lightning was going to be the last man fight or something like that, one of those. Uh, and so I decided to become an airline pilot. Um, I did all the courses, passed the exams, got my airline transport pilot's license, got offered a job with Northeast Airlines, who were up in Lang- um, Newcastle in those days. Um, and I then met a man called Roy Spooner, lovely man. He was a state agent, and he grabbed me in the flying club one day and said, um, uh, I'm going to start a business for helicopters. Would you join me? And I thought and thought and thought. And funny enough, the uh, interview board at Northeast Airlines had said to me, it's unlikely that you will make captain because of your age. And I thought... And I knew a few mates who were with the airlines flying the Viscount and things, and I thought that means he showed Claggan for Amsterdam, Schiphol, um, and back to England. I think I'd rather fly helicopters, and that's funny enough what diverted me off. And I remember saying to the people at Northeast, sorry, I ain't going to join you. How old were you then, Dennis? Oh, God, what was I then? 
uh, that was about 1968. So I was born in 32. So what was it, 26? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Or was I 36? Hang on, I can't remember. No, I must be 36. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, for the folks listening, because, you know, again, if they don't know you, you know your story, how old are you now, uh, Dennis? I'm sure about my age. I was asked that when I was in South Africa the other day. I said I'm 13. Um, <laughs> three weeks ago, on October the 4th, I was 82. Well done. <laughs> so, okay, so you picked up this job at this helicopter company that uh, didn't exist yet. The guy was starting it up. Had you flown a helicopter by this stage, either as a pilot or a passenger? What was your helicopter experience? No, I, I had no rotor experience whatsoever, other than a little bit in the Royal Air Force when you had to do it just to know what to do if you ditch in the, in, in, in water in the sea or somewhere. Um, now, he had an agency for a thing called the N-Strom. In those days, it was a, a non-turbocharged, uh, normally aspirated engine or injected, 28A. Um, I can even remember the registration. It was Golf Alpha Victor Uniform Kilo. And I learned to fly on that machine at Fair Oaks, which is a bit there down south of London. I must have had an aptitude for it because I... Sold off in around five hours on it, and I remember my instructor was a lovely, lovely man, a chap called Norman Bailey. But Norman Bailey, senior, not the son. Uh, he was an ex scout pilot, and uh, together he got me up to the required standard. And for my qualifying cross country, which was a bit iffy in those days, he sent me from Fair Oaks to Sunderland, which was about 200 miles away, only because I said I want to go up there to see an air show. <laughs> yep. So anyway, now I'm an instrument pilot, or I was then. And you, you've been flying the instruments ever since. You've, we'll get into that, I guess, a bit later, but you've maintained a, a pretty close relationship with that company. I kept the relationship with Enstrom, um, mainly for commercial reasons, because the firm I worked for were the Enstrom distributors for the whole of Europe, and, and I was appointed as chief pilot and sales guy, um, and also I, I had a TRE authority in those days, which meant, you know, you checked out the, the chapters, completed their course. And of course, during that time, I was also using the fixed wing because we had a Piper agency too. And in fact, matter, we had a Belgian Ranger agency, a Cessna agency, and even an agency for the Rally um, aircraft, the little French things. So I was getting lots of different types in, but Enstrom was the primary one, uh, mainly due to the sales. Okay, yep. And, and we'll, we'll come back to the flying just quickly because you've got a, a, quite a few things on the go. So you've got a, a flying scholarship, which we'll touch later in the interview and come back and cover that. We'll talk about how you get to up to your 32 roughly helicopter types in a moment too. Uh, okay. But you also, you've also been quite a prolific um, writer uh, since you've been doing the flying as well. So you've got the two books uh, and you also write for quite a few different magazines. Are you writing for, any, right. you're writing for magazines yeah. at the moment? Um, I, funny enough, only this morning before we called, I was doing an article for a, a new magazine, which I can't mention just yet because it's not been accepted, but um, there's a, a, one of the premier magazines in this country that asked me to uh, to write something. So I'm writing up um, something about the new FAMER, farmer, if you want to call it, helicopter, which you probably in Australia have not heard about yet. You will shortly. I think I've uh, seen little... some photos. Is, is it South African or is it European? Well, you say that there is a strong South African South African connection. The farm was built. The farm is being built at Modena, where they build the Ferraris. It's a two-seat, all-composite construction, but it has a turbine engine. 
So that's and it's, the, it's the size of a 22, isn't it? Or it's actually it's like it's a small? direct competition with a 22, but it would be a 22 with a turbine, which is what we all need. Maybe not so much where you are, but but piston fuel in this country is stratospheric in cost, nearly over 10 pounds for a gallon of the stuff, whereas uh, um, turbine fuel is a lot less. But apart from that, you've got the obvious advantages of a turbine engine. The difficulty at the moment is going to be that they are producing it as a kit built. Now, the CAA and the EASA people, that's the European Certification Authorities, won't even look at anything that's home built. But what's happened in South Africa, which I discovered when I was down there just earlier this month, um, is that the South African Certification Authorities, the CAA, have taken a much more realistic uh, attitude to the thing, and they have approved one of the major engineering firms um, at Waterburn, what's it called, Waterburn, oh, I don't know. Well, I think it's Waterburn, it's just north of Pretoria. And uh, they, as long as they manufacture these things, take the kits and build them to their professional standards, the South African CAA have accepted it. And uh, there are a few of these machines already in the school training there at Waterburn. Yeah, so it's nice that someone's just building it in their, in their shed in their backyard. It, but it's got to be built under that supervision. Well, you know, I, I think if that machine is a success, if it is, and from my knowledge of looking at it and seeing it and going into it in a little bit more detail, I think it's got to be a surefire success. We desperately need a turbine trainer um, in the market. All right. So, well, actually, I might. Uh, I have seen those on my radar as as folks to try and get on because uh, it's not. You know, there's quite a few new helicopter designs coming out now, which is kind of refreshing because it's been fairly static for a while. Um, yeah. All right. So let's okay. um, let's dive back into the into the flying then. So what what sort of did you you stayed obviously there with the dealership? Did you get out in the industry as far as other sort of job types? You mentioned earlier about getting to Hong Kong and doing flying there and things like that. But what was what was your kind of career progression? Was it mainly flying training, or how did it go from there? Well, I suppose looking back, it was mainly the sales that pushed me along so nicely. My boss was a very flexible guy, and as long as the sales were being made, and you've got to say that it was in the seventies, and the Robinson didn't exist. The Bell Forty Seven was was finished. The 300 wasn't really a, a candidate for, for people. The Ensign came along looking like the Robinson 44 and the 66 do today, looking a good machine, and everybody was buying it. So I wouldn't say it was much due to myself. But having said that, my boss said, I want you to jump into a machine, take one of the pilots with you, and go around your appointing dealers. And that's exactly what I did. Um, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but Today, there are 27 or 28 countries in the EU. I think I've visited probably half of those and appointed a deal in each of them. And the deal was that they had to buy an Enstrom to take on the dealership for their country, and it proved a quite a success. And I finished up in the first 10-year period with this firm. It was called Spooner Aviation, based at Shoreham Airport, um, near Brighton in Sussex. And uh, we finished up having sold 138 Enstroms in that 10 year period, which in those days was pretty good going. It's not by Robinson standards these days, so I think up to 11 or 12,000 they built. But um, in those days it was quite something. And so that's where I got that sort of experience from and the country experience. The other thing we used to do, I used to go down to East Africa to Nairobi area and buy fixed wing uh, and fly them back from East Africa up to uh, sort of this, Ab, Ab, oh, what's it, Ab, can't 
can't think of the name of the places now. I know we went through uh, Cairo and then across to uh, Bryn DC and up to Cannes and Gatwick for customs. So that gave us hell of a lot of uh, experience of flying around a bit um, and flying different types. Okay, and again, 32 helicopter types is, is not a small number. So that was just purely as you were out and about flying other people's machines and, and picking up those, those experiences? That's right. Well, I think we've mentioned the writing bit. Um, years and years ago, I, I've always had a hankering to write. We all love seeing our words in print, but they've got to be good words, otherwise you, you shouldn't find out. And I used to start to write about different types for various magazines. There was a magazine in the old days called Pilots International, and I would just say to the editor, look, why don't I go and find a, a Huey? Which there wasn't one in those days, and fly that and do a write-up on it. And so I did the Gazelle, the Koala, the Scout, the Wasp, the 61. I think I've mentioned Gazelle already. Lots of different types like that I got to fly. The one in the modern ones, the EC-130, 135, um, used to fly those and uh, and do some assessment and then ask them on them. I I was one of the first journalists, I believe, to fly the little Cabri, um, Bruce, um, Bruno Grimble's Cabri. He builds that down in of Provence in France. Um, I think I was one of the first, in fact, I'm sure I was the first pilot journalist to report on it. And I'd like to think that because I gave it such a favourable review that... Uh, it's been quite successful and it's been very successful in England and I understand it's also taking hold in Australia too. Yeah, I haven't, I don't know too much about that type, so I haven't seen one fly past yet. Okay. All right, Dennis, you've got so many different things we'll dive in. Okay, let's, let's talk about the film flying next because there's not going to be too many people listening to this who haven't seen Black Hawk Down, so that's probably, would that be the biggest film you've worked on? Yeah, that's probably the best I've ever done. Um, I started film flying um, in the 70s simply because people would ring us. We had an air operator certificate and say, we want a picture of an Enstrom to promote a fag or a drink or something. Dull things like my thumb appeared on a sidekick controller of an Enstrom and every billboard in the country promoting capstan fags, I think they were at the time. But that got started, and then I can't remember the first actual film I did. There was a thing, a TV series called To the Man of Born. We did that. Then there's another TV series called Soldier, Soldier. The first rollerball film came along, and I, we had an instrument in that. Um, Goldeneye came along, where we did some filming on the Neen Valley Railway. Oh, Magellan, that was an Austrian Bavarian TV film we did. Um, I'm forgetting them, but of course the big one that I loved was Black Hawk Down filmed in Morocco, and we were flying the um, the A86 version. Tremendous fun that film. Lots of stories about it, but I did to uh, have another hour with you to talk about that. But I well, loved it. Well, there's one. There's one again. I read, you wrote it very quickly about it that I read was um, the, the I guess the lead pilot was in a, in a 500 underneath you, and you must have been hovering high as a camera ship, and the the local kids came out and uh, actually brought him down with uh, with rocks. That's true. Bob Z was the number one pilot on that shoot. I was number two to him. We had a German pilot called Schumacher, obviously not the racing driver, number three. We had a um, twin squirrel. I was story ship, as was Bob Z. And, um, uh, oh, gosh, he's not Australian now. He used to do the Annika Rice thing over here. Jerry Grayson. Jerry Grayson, he's, he's out in America. He must have come across him at some size of Britain's out in Oz. Uh, and he was flying the twin school doing the filming. And yes, just as you said, some of the kids came out, got rocks, threw it through Bobsy's uh, tail rotor, and it brought him down. He was all right being him. He put it down into the, just in the desert, really, I suppose, outside uh, 
city masuhi put it down quite safely and the engineering came along whacked a new tow rotor on and off we continued with the filming that's probably not something you have to go up against in every filming job. That's uh, pretty unique. And, uh, I mean, some of the shots in those look awesome. You know, the, the four uh, little birds coming in and landing in the, in the streets and things like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I reckon yeah. it would have been a lot of fun. It was tremendous fun. Um, I know that um, one thing I remember, if you don't mind a slightly humorous quick story, I'll try and be quick. Ridley Scott wanted two helicopters to appear between the buildings with the sun behind them. So we had a sort of 10 minute window at the most where we could do the shots and uh, they were, we were in radio contact with the camera guys and they kept saying you know closer closer can you get closer and I was right up tight behind Bob Z both flying the 500 or the military version of the 500 and he said Dennis are you in position and I said yes Bob nice and tight for Christ's sake don't fart <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was amusing at the time <laughs> uh, you would have been very close I'm sure because yeah even some of the other shots there and uh, it's hard to tell too with the film work with the lenses and things like that um, how close the ships get but uh, yeah with a machine well, sorry go for safety it safety is everything in all forms of flying but um, the military guys who came over with the Black Hawks um, you know they, they had their own sets of rules and of course they were the, the superb flyers um, the crash scenes in Black Hawk were all plastic models of course and so I, I was left with what was flying they called the little birds, and uh, we just had our own our own rules. Um, to me, if you're close flying, two rotor widths is as close as you need to be. I know the American service guys uh, were much closer than that. Yeah, it's probably not too much cool. We were we pretty never came much under that close. So, uh, but those they were actually one sixtieth guys, then were they? Actually, they were U.S. Um, Army yeah, guys. Yeah, it was one sixtieth. Yeah, they were flying. Mm. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about the display side of things because, again, in you know, recent history, that's probably where most folks would associate your name with, with the helicopter display. And, uh, again, I've been you know, trying through some fantastic quotes here. One of these quotes is, uh, Dennis, didn't you put the D in display? Uh, was one of the, uh, <laughs> the quotes I came up with. But uh, so you're a CAA-approved helicopter display pilot. What does that mean? Like how many of those sort of qualifications are floating around the UK? Well, it started a bit. I'm probably the grandfather of it over here, simply because um, I, I don't want to keep on going on, but there's so much to talk about. I went to America when the defense lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, was owning the factory, and they wanted to announce, or they wanted to make a fuss about the new factory, because sales were so good for the Enstrom up at Menominee in Michigan. The sales were so good that they wanted this new factory and we were invited to go over just to sort of wave the flag a bit. We'd been quite a successful dealer in England. And when I got there, they said, oh, after tea, Mike Meager, and he was the Ensign Chief Test Pilot in those days, is going to do a display. And I thought, display, what's he going to do? Show us how well he can hover or what? And he put on a display that was very much the same as I do to this very day. Um, so much so that I said to my boss, Roy, Roy, we've got to get this Mike fellow over to Farnborough. And this would have been, I think, the 1974 Farnborough, um, and show the machine off. The Mike fellow came over, displayed, and our static stand at Farnborough was six people deep, wanting to know what sort of helicopter was capable of performing like that. I then, then said to Mike, look, why don't we get him over for the world championships that are being held in England that year. 
And sure enough, he came over and I crewed for him. And Mike did his display and won the freestyle competition. So that was one of the things that was giving us a real boost to helicopter sales. And I'd been... I had been an aerobatic pilot in fixed wing in, in the service um, and done lots of formation flying and things on the squadron. And I said, Roy said to me, do you think you could do that display? And being a big-headed youngster, I said, of course I can. So I died over to America. And by this time, Mike Meagerfellow had retired and a new guy had come over. And so I said, would you come to Farnborough next year? Uh, and he came over and I said, would you show me the ropes? And we spent, I don't know, probably four or five sorties. And he was just showing me the basic manoeuvres. And from there on, I carried on doing it. And I enhanced it, enhanced it. Went to my engineering, checked telltale travel on the main loader hubs, the dorsal fin, and those sort of things, see where we were going. And gradually worked up. Now, in those days, the CIA had no input whatsoever. There was no such thing as an approved display pilot. Uh, and I went on displaying. I don't know, probably got up to six or 700 displays at Biggin Hill and those sort of places. Everywhere there was any event, I'd go. What was your display. first really big display? Just doing display or flying, yeah. Oh, and no, then so what was your, your first really now, big air show? It's the air show scene, yes. Uh, and then the, the CAA became involved and said that we want to regularise all this. Uh, you're one of the few pilots in the country who's doing any display manoeuvres. Would you become a DAE, which is a display authority evaluator? And I, I took on that role, must have been 20 years ago now, and been doing it ever since. All right, how, how many qualified display pilots would there be in the UK? Well, as a DAE, I've probably issued a display authority to maybe a dozen. I doubt, and I'm sorry, I haven't got the actual figure for you, but I could find out, but I doubt if it's in excess of 2,024. Um, and I think there are only two, maybe three, or even four pilots who regularly display in England. Uh, that's not the situation perhaps in Europe, certainly not the situation in America. But in England, there's myself uh, and three others. Um, one guy is a really neat, nice, tidy pilot these days. And that's a chap called Quentin Smith, who is the son of the infamous Mike Smith, who's you know, a bit of a legend in the industry. Um, and so he flies regularly, as I do, now, of course, as age has crept up on me, uh, I'm hoping to pass on that mantle to somebody else. In fact, I have just now completed a 20-hour course for another display, fixed-wing display pilot, who probably will be able to take over the flying for me when I do exactly when I, when I, whenever I decide to completely stop. Fantastic! And I saw something recently. So you've, you've ticked over 1,500 displays recently. Is that about, about right? Yes, indeed. I was invited to go down to Waterkloof near Pretoria at the beginning of this month. Yeah, this month. We're not moved into November yet. And display the MD530, the F model. That's the 630 shaft engine, six blader. No, sorry, that's the five blader. There is a six blader version, but that's the five blader. And also the Enstrom 480, the B model. And a 280 standard shark. And I went over there. It was a great, great show. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. In fact, it really revitalised my interest in flying because as, as the years go by, you tend to think, well, I've done this, I've done that. Some, you've got to hang up your helmet at some time. But I had such a fabulous week with the guys at Waterproof displaying two or three times a day for the period of the show. Tremendous fun. 
<laughs> I love it. I, I can I can hear it in your voice, like the, the passion about what you do as well. It certainly comes. Well, I've through. got that. A lot of people say to me, Dennis, you're passionate about flying, and I have to say, in spite of some of the horrid things that happened to me, um, yes, I'm totally passionate about it, and to this day. Well, for on behalf of everyone listening, you know, congratulations on you know cracking over 1,500 uh, displays. That's, that's a fair <laughs> effort. Well, 1,500 practices and 1,500 displays. It's not 1,500 <laughs> public displays. It's 1,500. For every display, public display, I'd probably do three to four practices. Okay, sure. Oh, well, yeah, well, I was going to talk about practicing too, but uh, before we get to that, I just want to quickly talk about the World Helicopter Championships because uh, you've placed pretty well there. Uh, can you just quickly talk about your experience and, and kind of what happens at a, at a World Helicopter Championship? Is it different events? Is it, you know, is it a trade show as well? I've never been one, so what happens at a, at a championship? It's changed in recent years. At one time, there was a laid down series of manoeuvres. Um, for, for example, the first world championship I took part in as a pilot, not as a crewman, was the one at Cranfield. That would have been the fifth world championships. And there they laid down the manoeuvres you had to do in the allotted slot. And so that's exactly what you did. But you were allowed in those days to throw in a couple of manoeuvres that we called freestyle. I got a fifth first in that time, quite a good entry. The problem with the championships these days is that it's become very much a European thing. And in the early days, the Americans came over, and I don't think I've ever seen the Australians over, but the South Africans came, and the Russians always came, the Germans and the Italians and the French and things. But it doesn't get any publicity. And more recently, it's become almost a clubby affair. I did the Cranfield Championships, 86, and I think the next one I took part in was right around as far as 2000, sorry, not 2000, 1992. Uh, that was held in England again, um, and using an engine on, I actually got a first. I don't run away with the idea of that for the reasons I've just said. You know, it's not open enough. I mean, anyone anywhere in the world can enter, but people don't for some reason. But nevertheless, I suppose there's a dozen people have a go at it. And I got a first that year. When was it after that? Oh, God, my head's rattling my head around a bit. Um, I went to Austria. That must have been 2003, might have been 2002. Did a really nice display in a 300 uh, in amongst the mountains at Eisen, not Eisenach, what's the airfield called? Agen, Agen in the Tyrol. And I got a third there. The Russians came first, of course, as they always used to. Um, next one was a bit contentious for me. I went to France to Rouen in 2005 and I put on what I think to this day was probably my best ever display. It got the highest marks from the judges. I even beat the Russian by two points and there was a good good entry too on that occasion. But then they came along and said, you went too high and you went outside the box and we're just going to find you, which I thought was a bit naughty and a bit political, but still. That's how, how did they measure so, the height? Um, and then the last one I took part in was um, Germany. Went to Eisenach on the Russian border, the old Russian border. Uh, again, very, very low entry, so I don't get carried away with the result, but I did get a fourth. Yeah, so I, uh, the notes I had was, um, yeah, you had a fifth, a third, a fifth, uh, and then the one in 2005, and yeah, last one. So <laughs> not a bad effort. That's pretty good. The, the types you do your display in, so you've got the Instrument, the 300, and the MD500, have you done displays in other types, or that's the three you kind of uh, Yeah, I, I, I do the Enstrom series, the 228-280, also the 480, which is the one I flew in um, South Africa earlier this month. Uh, I have displayed the Western Scout, and it's 
um, Waterbourne Park, the Wasp, but um, they're the major things. I, I don't display two Raiders ever, um, not because I can't think, because they can't be displayed, but I don't have enough time on two Raider machines to, to want to do that. And what goes into planning a display? So have you had a fairly set display routine now for a long time, or do you adapt it each time? How, how well, the way it worked for me, as I say, I, I started this really before the CA got involved, and what I did, it, you don't just jump out there and chuck the thing around the sky and hope to see what happens. Apart from doing the physical checks with the machine, with engineers looking at what I was doing, and having a G meter on board and, and extensions to the fins to see where the blades were going, I worked up, for some reason, 17 individual display manoeuvres, which I've put down in writing there on my computer. When I know the nature of the display I'm going to do, the size of the display, it's like a big airfield with a mile, two mile long one way, you can put more manoeuvres in, but you can put the speed up a bit, otherwise you'd never get from one end to the other end of the runway in time. Uh, and so I just calculate what I'll do from those manoeuvres and how I link them together for every individual display. But the manoeuvres remain unchanged, and what I'd like to try and do is display seamlessly from one manoeuvre to another. So... You know, the display I do isn't anywhere near as good as what the 105 boats like Chuck Allen can do because they've got a fixed head and they can fly upside down and stay there if they want to. So what I like to try and do is to put the manoeuvres together seamlessly and all I know is it works. The crowd love it. They all wave and people come to me after and say, that was a great display, so I, I go on doing it. And I'll have some the YouTube clips of your display flying on the on the website post for this because it, it is. It's beautiful watching it. It's just, you know, that energy momentum as you sort of bring around the sky it, it really is you know figure skating or it, any of those types of uh, things it's lovely to you say that because that's what I try and achieve particularly when I was flying the, the um, MB530 I mean that's got so much power um, a real stump puller um, but the Enstrom whilst it's a powerful machine it can't compete with the abilities and the small disc and disc loading of the 500. So what I try and do with the Enstrom is make it a, what I call a ladylike, smooth, gentle, ballet-type display with it, if I can. And when somebody says to me, that was great, I love the way you went from one minute to another, it pleases me a lot. Can you break down some of the, uh, like what are some of your uh, cliché or the, the moves that you people would sort of recognise with your flying display? I'm well known for this pirouette thing. I don't know where that started from. Um... You can lift the machine up with a bit of collective input. I usually go against the torque with left pedal in the case of the Enstrom. Uh, that gets it rotating. And then I get the angle of the rotor disc to the ground um, with cyclic. And if there's not too much wind, it's a pretty straightforward, easy manoeuvre to do. It gets a bit difficult when the wind's blowing, of course, because you're coping with translational lift from in front and from behind. So you've got to work the cyclic a bit. What I do there is I paint or chalk white on the tips of the blade so I can see where the blades are going. Um, things like the 500 and the 300 got a smaller disc, a much smaller disc than the Enstrom. Uh, that's not a problem, but on the bigger machine, the, the Enstrom 480 and 280, you've got to watch where the disc is going. Not had any problems with it yet in all those displays, so uh, I think I've got it about right, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it looks pretty good. I guess for, for people listening to you, because it's very much an audio trying to describe a visual thing, but you essentially have the left left toe of the skid uh, in the same place on the ground uh, and yes. you're spinning you're basically keeping that in con- well not well sometimes it's in contact but otherwise it's keeping the, the left toe stationary and yeah I try and keep around. it in contact it's very very difficult without tons of practice to actually be in contact when the wind's blowing because as you come around into wind you get instant translational lift and it's much to lift off uh, and you can never quite get it right because you don't know what the wind is doing 
Um, so um, it, it's it's a nice, easy maneuver to do. I do try and keep the, the, skin, the skin in contact. And in fact, at Waterclose, just earlier this month, in practice, I'd marked their runway with a tip skid, put a little circle there. It was only a couple of feet across the circle. I noticed when I went to do the subsequent displays, they went out with the fire engine and foamed the area so that I wouldn't mark their runway. <laughs> I thought that was amusing. If you, ever, so if you ever see the the, uh, the video that's been produced, I think it's on one of YouTube or Facebook or one of them, um, you'll see a big pile of foam with me sort of sloshing around in the middle of it. Uh, and, and there's a story related there somewhere along the lines of a water bucket. You used to do it with a water bucket on the on the tow? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, there's another pilot um, up at uh, Sireworld who does that, does that better than me. He'll pick up a traffic cone on his skid. And I've seen an American pilot do the same thing. But yes, I went through a phase where um, there was a water bucket and I was uh, clipping the, putting the skid through it, lifting it up, turning it around through 360 degrees and trying to put it down again without spilling the water. But uh, that's more a candy, what I call a candy frost show, you know, a circus event rather than a technical um, thing that I do for, for a, no, an aviation knowledgeable public. Sure. And there's another maneuver you do is like a, the rearward spiral climb type thing. So you basically get the aircraft moving backwards. And then yeah, you... that's, that's another maneuver. And I go with the torque um, to get a speedy uh, rotation against the torque, you know, uh, on the 500, it's so much power, it doesn't matter which way you go, it will end strong, it goes nicely when you're going with the torque, it's a bit of a struggle against the torque. But all the displays are done at very low weight, the minimum sort of safe weight of the machine, so I haven't got to have a lot of work to do with it. Alright, well, I might talk about the, the weight and the performance uh, quickly, as it, because it pre-leads in from this one, but you've got a couple of different variations of the, the wing over, and so most folks would kind of uh, appreciate going flat out, letting the flat back, letting the nose come up, and then as the aircraft's coming up, bringing it around 180, coming back the way you came. But you've got a couple of variations on that, where you call the 270 and the 360 uh, degree wing over, which kind of sounds hard to get your head around. And, and when you're watching the videos, it's, it's hard to actually see which way the helicopter's going as well. So. <laughs> I know, and I love it. <laughs> I've had so many, I've come down, and so many people said to me, "What the hell was that maneuver?" And I thought it was a standard wing over. Which way were you going? <laughs> yeah, I in the early days, um, I started. See, in nineteen the 70s, the Mike Mega Man actually showed me a full loop, only at altitude. We didn't do it at low level. Uh, where you run in, this is with the end storm, up to about the maximum speed, which would have to be 117, but we take it up to about 100. Uh, our sidekick, although the translational lift was bringing the nose up anyway, get to the vertical position with the horizon, with the um, horizon at right angles to you, and then start putting back on the sidekick. And a lot of helicopter pilots will be interested to know, you start to progressively lower the lever so that when you're at the top of the loop, the lever's fully down. I've actually, believe it or not, split the needle upside down. I've actually looked down quickly when I'm monitoring what I'm doing, and the needle, just for a second or two, so you're actually alteration inverted. It's only the same as being the other way towards the ground, but then you pull it through, and uh, and then as you need to recover, just progressively raise the lever. Now, um, that's the 360, which I have done, and there is one on the internet. I did one, I think, at the one of the displays uh, at Northfield, which is on YouTube, I've seen it on there, um, which is a low-level loop and a very nice, smooth one. Um, but for public, um, for the public, and I do this, what I call 270, which is running in on the B axis to the crowd line and going round just through 270 degrees, 
or coming in and just do a 180 at either end of the of the runway, which is really a talk turn. A lot of people call it a talk turn. I call it a wing over. Uh, you can do that right or left. And um, you get it vertical. You've got to watch this display thing, you see, because you've got a big insurance problem um, and, the, and the certification problem. In England, an aerobatic manoeuvre is generally regarded as not more than 90 degrees in roll and pitch. Other certification authorities have much stricter limits. But anyway, I'd like to think I keep within that limit. Our CAA know me. They know I've been doing it for such a long time, I suppose, in some way. They've given me grandfather rights. Whether or not that will go on forever, I, I just don't know. But uh, you know, it's a safe display, unless you're going to talk about the time I got it wrong. And um, I'm perfectly happy to go on doing it because it brings... It brings interest, it gives the air show crowd pleasure, it gives me pleasure with doing it. And so I want it to go on. And that's where we cut this interview short, just due to time. So part two comes up in the next episode. And we're going to be more talking about display flying. We chat about his accident, which he is very lucky to have walked away from, and how you can become a display pilot yourself. We talk about the Dennis Kenyon Jr. helicopter scholarship. I read out a message that brings a, a tear to Dennis's eye, and you can find out about the type of helicopter that Dennis would still love to fly, but hasn't yet done so. So all that is in the next episode. If you'd like to be the first to know when that goes live, then head over to rotarywingshow.com and download the list of the top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew. Uh, that way you'll get an email from me every time a new show or new episode goes live. Quick plug for the show sponsors. So head over, if you're in a training environment in your uh, a flight school uh, or in an organization where your business is training pilots, then head over to trainmorepilots.com. It's a place to go if you want to get some resources and tips on how to bring in more students to your helicopter training courses. Follow the show on social media. If you think it's worthwhile, give us a shout out on your network and share the stories of people we interview, like Dennis. Thanks for listening again. Don't forget to check out the entire back catalogue of shows if you've joined us for the first time today. I've had a fantastic time. It's been a pleasure doing this. I've been your host, Mick Cullen, and I'll chat to you next time. <laughs>